Today on Lawfare No Bull. Earlier this month, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco spoke at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics about the role of the Department of Justice in a time of intense partisan division. She discussed the rule of law, impartiality, institutional reform at the Justice Department, and more. The audio for this event was provided by the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. Well, it's a pleasure to be here to talk to you and to welcome you back to the University of Chicago, where you spent, I'm sure, a very happy three years, totally stress-free. I did. As a law no, student. I loved going to law school here. I like to say I had a strange reaction to law school, which is to say I enjoyed it. <laughs> I really, really, really liked it. And it was great to be back uh, at the law school. Uh, now, it does help that it's a gorgeous day. Um, and... The campus seems to be a lot nicer, a lot leafier, a lot sunnier. People seem much more chill than when I was here. So it's great to be back. Not that chill, though. It's still the University of Chicago. True. <laughs> well, let's see. Yeah. Um, so the title of today's uh, conversation is Justice in the Spotlight, which I'm going to use my moderator's priv privilege to interpret to mean how do you do justice in the spotlight of a highly politically polarized time? Um, you know, this question of how one acts as a lawyer at a time of deep political division is one I think about all the time in my job as a law professor, when my job, you know, particularly at the University of Chicago, prides itself on this, is moderating a vigorous and open discussion between students of very different political uh, perspectives. But, uh, you know, over the past few years, I found this a much harder job to do as students have become so profoundly divided and distrustful of one another. And I imagine it's a problem that is exponentially more difficult to do when you're helping to run the Department of Justice. So today I wanted to ask you about how you navigate the partisan divides and the pitfalls of life in contemporary United States in your job as the Deputy Attorney General. So I thought I would start by asking you what you conceive the Department of Justice's role to be in the contemporary landscape. You've said that the DOJ holds a, and I'm quoting you here, a uh -oh. unique place in the federal government because it is an executive agency that wears two hats. First, it is an executive agency that implements the president's policy objectives. Second, it is an independent investigator and prosecutor and must act free from any political or partisan influence. Now, there's obviously tension between these two hats, these two goals, uh, particularly, I think, today when Americans of different political stripes differ so profoundly in their view of the role of the federal government, what it should be doing, and about what it means to enforce federal laws in a non-political manner. So I wanted you to ask you sort of generally about running the, the DOJ at a time of intense partisan division. How do you make ordinary Americans believe that you're acting in a partisan free way, and how do you actually do it? So, in typical law professor fashion, she's uh, started with a really easy question. Yeah, Way to just kind of... from here. Uh, and not a multiple choice answer. Uh, so first, since you're a free speech scholar, I'm happy to say you quoted me accurately. <laughs> um, look, first of all, I'm going to be a little bit contrarian and say I actually don't think there's tension in those two hats, and I'll explain why um, in a minute. But the, you know, I grew up as a lawyer in the Justice Department. Literally, my first job um, as a lawyer after my clerkship was as, uh, as Eliza, and thank you very much, Eliza, for the very kind and generous introduction. 
as Eliza laid out, my first job was counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno. And uh, she was no denizen of Washington, D.C. She was like the very opposite of a D.C. insider, right? She had been the state's attorney in Miami, um, done very innovative things like uh, the first drug court, uh, things that are now pretty commonplace, uh, luckily, in uh, state and local um, justice systems. So she'd been an innovator. And she came to Washington, was a total fish out of water. But she ran the department very, very conscious of these two hats. And that's where I got my education. Um, and I got my education on the unique role of the department, which has helped me to navigate all of the roles I've had in the department and I think prepared me um, for this role. And this is why. Janet Reno hung a portrait of a guy named Ed Levy in her conference room. I see nods in the audience. Good. You have now passed the first test. Uh, Ed Levy was, of course, the dean of the law school, the provost of this great university, and the president of this great university. And he uh, was plucked from these hallowed halls uh, after Watergate to become the attorney general. Uh, and you students of history will know that that was, we think things have been tough, and I know a lot of people think things have been tough uh, in our political system and in our justice system and um, in the last several years, but Watergate was a real body blow to norms and traditions uh, and uh, was a real tough time for the Justice Department. And so Ed Levy came on board as Attorney General after the Saturday Night Massacre, and uh, President Ford asked him to take the helm to kind of restore the department. Um, and he put in place a kind of foundation that uh, many of us who've now become leaders in the department look to as our kind of North Star. And Attorney General Reno did that, and that was my first education of the department. So the reason I say that there is not tension between these two hats is I think it's completely reasonable to, although unique in the Justice Department, and the Justice Department is unique in our system of government, in our federal system, of being the only cabinet agency that does wear these two hats. So on the one hand, um, we are independent investigators and prosecutors in our criminal enforcement role. And we have to do that job completely free, certainly of partisan or political influence, but frankly of any external or extrinsic influences, right? Without uh, regard to who is the defendant, without regard to our own personal views uh, about a particular law, um, we have to apply the facts and the law uh, and do so in an even-handed manner and consistent with the principles of federal prosecution. Pro tip, those of you who want extra credit, go to Google and Google principles of federal prosecution, and you'll see the guidance that federal prosecutors adhere to uh, in fulfilling this independent prosecutorial function. So that's one hat. The other hat is regardless of that function, we also have a responsibility as an agency in the executive branch to pursue, as long as they're lawful, the policy priorities of the president. Whoever he or she is who decides uh, these are the policy priorities, we march forward and pursue those. 
And that's completely appropriate. The reason I say they're not in tension is because this is how we navigate it. It is completely appropriate for the president to say, okay, Justice Department, uh, I want the policy priority to be pick an enforcement issue, violent crime, mm -hmm. healthcare fraud. I want you to put your resources on that enforcement issue. I want you to make that priority. Okay, and we can quite appropriately do that. What can't happen is for the president or some other political actor in the administration to say, and Genevieve, I want you to prosecute that hospital and that executive of that healthcare system for whatever reason. Um, that's where those two streams cannot meet. So I don't think that there is tension in these two hats. There is a challenge in making sure that we are constantly, on, on the one hand, acting um, consistent with the principles of federal prosecution and um, not undertaking our enforcement mission um, pursuant to any political or partisan or other extrinsic consideration, um, but we can also fulfill those policy priorities completely uh, appropriately. Now, I suspect your follow-up question is, all right, so how do you yeah. keep those prosecutors and investigators free of political influence? Yeah, let's get more fine-grained. Let's talk about charging decisions. Yeah. So I teach criminal law to first years, and one of the things you learn when you learn about criminal law, I mean, there's lots of surprising things one learns as a law student about the criminal law. One of them, I <laughs> is think, there's a lot of is it. There's so much of it. <laughs> yeah. There's so much, and there's this thing called prosecutorial discretion, which is a product, which is both intrinsic to the system, but also a product of the amount of laws that there are on the books. Yeah. A good prosecutor can charge someone with so many potential crimes, uh, and it, it's up to the prosecutor. And so when I hear you say, on the one hand, there's legitimate policy objectives, and the, on the other hand, there's prosecuting crime, and these are separate, mm -hmm. I'm not so sure they're separate. There are going to be political, cho there are choices about where to expend resources when it comes to charging all the time. Mm -hmm. So how do you make these choices? Who makes these choices? And how do you ensure that they are free from what, you, what you're describing as partisan influence, but still subject to the policy imperatives of the administration. Sure, and the policy imperatives are okay, right? Because it is a policy choice. So let's take my hypo, right? We got a lot of law students, let's take a hypo. Mm -hmm. My hypo was the, the policy choice is healthcare fraud. Mm -hmm. That is a perfectly legit policy choice. Now, you might, if there are rising crime rates, you might take some political heat for putting all of your focus on healthcare fraud versus violent crime or the like, but it's, a, it's an appropriate uh, or a reasonable policy judgment to make. You can make that judgment um, and you know, you'll answer those political actors or policymakers will, will answer at the ballot box, but it's, it's an okay judgment to make when it comes to the role that the Justice Department plays. Now, how do we then whatever the policy priority is, the enforcement priority is, how do you make sure that you're making those choices um, free of extrinsic influence? Now, look, the reality is we're all people. It's not like you kind of become a federal prosecutor and you um, uh, undergo a brain transplant and you don't actually have views. But we do have what, we're, what I called, um, what I referred to rather as the principles of federal prosecution. And it's a set of guidelines um, and guidance to prosecutors to say, 
here's how you should undertake your, what is frankly an awesome power, and by awesome I don't mean cool, I mean really expansive and significant, right? Here's how you should structure your decision making, right? And first is, is there, is the conduct that you're looking at, is it a violation of law? Is it a federal crime, okay? We've already established there's lots of that, so. Mm -hmm. um, second is, um, do you have sufficient evidence to obtain and sustain a conviction, okay? Uh, is there a substantial federal interest that will be advanced by pursuing this case and not the next case, right? Um, can that case actually be pursued equally well or better in another jurisdiction, right? Can a state court handle it? Should the state prosecutor handle it? It's why you don't see federal prosecutors doing a lot of um, general criminal enforcement, right? Uh, or even a very significant crime like murder, unless there's a federal uh, interest or a federal law has been violated. Um, and then, importantly, is there a non-criminal alternative? These are all laid out in the principles of federal prosecution. And that is how prosecutors are taught to structure their decision making. Because although you've heard about the vast resources of the federal government, uh, let me in on, let you in on a little secret. It is not limitless, okay? So we also have to choose how we deploy those resources. But then very, very, very importantly, we also have something called the Attorney General's Guidelines. And these also lay out kind of the boundaries, the guardrails, for how we undertake our investigative and prosecution mission. So you cannot undertake an investigation for something that is solely, and this is near and dear to your heart, First Amendment protected conduct, right? Uh, you cannot investigate somebody for exercising their First Amendment right. Um, and, and again, if you go to the principles of federal prosecution, it's laid out there in black and white, it says you cannot consider extrinsic issues, right? You can't be influenced in undertaking this prosecution decision by somebody's race, gender, uh, and other uh, considerations, right? You can't take into account or factor in your own personal viewpoint, mm -hmm. how this uh, investigation or prosecution may um, influence your own personal views. So that's all laid out in the principles of federal prosecution. That's how we are guided, and of course, guided by the AG guidelines and the Constitution. Now, these are important principles, but they're also decades old principles. They've been organizing the department for, I mean, of course, they change over time, and the attorney yeah. general's guidelines change with every attorney general. But these are pretty familiar mm -hmm. uh, basic constraints in the way the DOJ operates. Yeah. But has anything changed? Uh, you know, the question today is the increasingly fractured um, polarized nature of American society. For example, yeah. you know, do you worry when you're making charging decisions? And actually, I want to ask more about who's making the charging sure. decisions and how much control there is over those mm -hmm. decisions. Are there concerns about political fallout if some decisions are too politically costly or too distracting from the administration's business? Mm -hmm. You know, the reality of doing politics, I think, today is that, it's, that there's uh, <laughs> a lot of negative uh, press, a lot of um, oppositional tactics, and so yeah. how do you take that account, into account when you're um, making these decisions? So first, who makes the charging decisions? In the vast majority of cases, it's career 
federal prosecutors, right? So these are men and women who are not political appointees. The Justice Department is made up of nearly 116,000 individuals, okay? Law enforcement agents, investigators, analysts, uh, prosecutors, attorneys, um, economists, scientists. We've got uh, folks from a whole range of disciplines. Uh, and the vast majority of charging decisions are made by career federal prosecutors. Now, um, some require greater level of supervisory approval, depending on, um, so for instance, um, a significant hate crimes investigation or um, a terrorism investigation. So I was the head of the National Security Division, um, which was the first new litigating division created in the Justice Department uh, after, since the Civil Rights Division in the 60s, and it was created, the National Security Division was created after 9-11 to bring together the intelligence function and uh, criminal prosecutors uh, to prevent and prosecute terrorist acts, espionage acts, um, and those charging decisions, mm -hmm. for instance, in terrorism cases, had to be approved by me. Why? Because we wanted to make sure both that there was a national viewpoint on what the, at the time, terrorist threat was, and that we were using those statutes, those very, very powerful statutes, in a consistent way. So that's the answer to who's doing them. How do you do your best to keep those judgments free of mm -hmm. extrinsic influences? A few things. One is by trying to adhere to norms of practice and procedure, things like uh, the White House contacts policy that I mentioned that Attorney General Levy put in place. Um, he put in place what's called the White House contacts policy, which every Attorney General has had in place, some version of it, uh, since the 70s. And that governs how and whether, in very strict circumstances, there will be any discussion between the White House and the Justice Department on criminal enforcement issues. Uh, and that is to guard against some prosecutor, we call them line prosecutors, right? A, assistant U.S. Attorney who's investigating a case, maybe it's a sensitive public corruption case. Um, imagine if that prosecutor gets a call from somebody high up in the administration, somebody who works in the White House, and says, you know, I, maybe you should lay off that guy. That is verboten. That is, uh, and that AUSA knows to call my office to say that is unacceptable. And why do they know that? Because we've issued this guidance, the Attorney General, uh, Attorney General Garland issued this memo, um, his version of the White House contacts policy, to make sure everybody knows that type of contact is unacceptable. So putting out and being very clear, those are the guardrails, and this is what we expect. Because it's our job, the Attorney General's and mine, to make sure that our prosecutors and agents are able to do their job free of any of those types of considerations. Mm -hmm. I mean, your answer, which was really interesting, makes me uh, want to ask um, about another aspect of doing justice today, yeah. which is doing justice in the aftermath of the Trump administration, and how do you deal with the legacy of the Trump administration? So there is widespread uh, concern, I think, among lawyers and others that under the Trump administration, many of those guardrails were not strictly observed. There were violations of these, some of these basic uh, norms. And when you were nominated to your position, you said that the DOJ stood at an inflection point, using your words again, 
and that the department had to recommit itself to the promise of equal justice. Now, I take these statements to articulate an implied criticism of the DOJ under the Trump administration, the need to recommit, um, and a criticism, again, that is widely shared. So how do you, in practice, recommit the DOJ to this promise of a, of a nonpartisan justice? How do you deal with the legacy of a prior administration uh, and a prior DOJ? So for example, again, getting more fine-grained, you know, as all of the law students in the room know, individual cases can take years and years to win their way through the system. So the Biden DOJ, to put it, is going to be dealing with a lot of cases that were initiated under the prior administration. So how do you ensure that the decisions to continue to prosecute, prosecute these cases are good ones? Well, look, um, one is, as I said before, making sure that those decisions are guided by, and we are articulating our expectation that those judgments, those charging decisions, uh, those continued prosecutions are adhering to things like uh, the AG guidelines, things like the principles of federal prosecution. Um, but, you know, I, it's interesting because I get asked about quote-unquote controversial cases a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, one person's controversial case is another person's righteous prosecution, right? Um, the point is that our job is to um, enforce the law, uh, to do so, as I said, consistent with the principles that I laid out, uh, and to do so in a way that is consistent with the rule of law, meaning that the, the basic premise, and Attorney General Garland talks about this a lot, uh, the central norm, we talk about making sure we are abiding by norms, right? Um, the central norm for a rule of law system is that there's one set of rules. That same set of rules applies regardless of who's on the other side of the V. United States versus Monaco. United States versus Lakeier. It shouldn't matter um, who's on the other side of the V, how rich and powerful they are, whether they're a Democrat or Republican. We've got to apply mm -hmm. the facts and the law consistently uh, regardless, and it's our job uh, to do that. Now, the, you say, well, how do you avoid controversial cases? Our job isn't to avoid, and we don't spend time avoiding controversy or sensitivities. What we do avoid is making decisions based on political considerations, mm -hmm. whether that's who you're going to, quite frankly, piss off, uh, or um, whether or not you're going to get heat from action or inaction. You know, I had uh, my first boss I referenced was Attorney General Reno. She had a s phrase that stuck in my head from the very earliest time um, that I spent with her. She used to, and she got a lot of heat in her day as Attorney General. Um, she used to say, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't, so I might as well do the right thing. That's pretty good guidance. Okay, but it's not only controversial cases. So again, just to get yeah. specific. So for example, in a, a case that came to light uh, in June, I think, of last year, uh, it, uh, there was news reporting that lawyers from the DOJ under the Trump administration uh, subpoenaed Apple for information about the records of Democratic members of Congress without letting those members of Congress know it, without informing the proper channels. Um, and I think you referred this matter to the DOJ Inspector General for review, mm -hmm. after which Attorney General Garland tasked you, um, generally announced with surfacing problematic matters deserving high-level review. Fun job, I'm sure. Yep. Um, and you've talked a lot about norms mm -hmm. and being normatively committed to doing the right thing. 
But I guess two questions here. One, um, should there be a general, uh, inspector general position set up to surface to do the thing that the attorney general asked you to do, but I imagine you have many other things in your plates, <laughs> to look for problematic cases initiated under the Trump administration? That is to say, is someone doing many other tasks enough to do this job, and is it enough to rely on norms, on the good faith behavior of members of the Department of Justice, when we might worry that we live at a time when commitment to these norms, these fundamental norms of equal justice and democracy, are not as firm as they used to be, and perhaps asymmetrically applied? Yeah, look, I mean, this is a kind of um, uber debate that I think folks have been having now for a while, which is... Um, should we be um, putting soft norms into hard laws, right? Should we codify some of these norms? Um, and it's a reasonable debate to be having. I guess what I would say to that is, at the end of the day, you've got to rely on people to either observe the norms and guidelines like the principles of federal prosecution, the White House contacts policy, um, and you've got to rely on people to adhere to the law. Right? So at the, at the end of the day, you still need to have confidence in the people in these positions because they're going to be the ones either adhering to or not the norms or applying or not uh, the law. So I'm, I think we can, we can debate at the kind of edges whether some things are better as a law or some better as a norm. Uh, but at the end of the day, it depends on people uh, of good faith and people being held accountable. So to your IG question, uh, look, the Inspector General, I referred that matter to the Inspector General because I thought it was appropriate for uh, somebody who is independent within the Justice Department to undertake uh, that review. Um, and he will do that amongst a whole range of other things and can make criminal referrals, can make um, administrative um, recommendations, can make management recommendations, and inspectors general, and, and this one is an excellent one, uh, you know, do that uh, across administrations. So I do think that's an appropriate uh, way to go and was an appropriate thing to do in that instance. Uh, I mean, other than that, though, we haven't seen a whole, as far as we know, <laughs> So I guess I should phase this as a question, because mm -hmm. um, you're here and you can't escape. Um, <laughs> um, have there been efforts to make other kinds of reforms, institutional reforms to the DOJ to avoid repeating whatever errors may have occurred or crimes may have occurred uh, under the Trump administration? I mean, you say correctly that it's people who ultimately have to enforce all the laws. Mm -hmm. No rule is going to be enforcing itself, and so we constantly have to worry about the how effective our mechanisms of enforcement are. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'm a law professor. I spend a lot of my time telling students that the institutions we build matters, yep. and the way in which we structure our institutions, our flow of information, our relations of authority yes. and hierarchy, and transparency obligations, right, what we make public, all affect the likelihood or the you know, unlikelihood of rules being followed. Mm -hmm. And so is there a desire, is there an effort, or do you think is there a need for there to be sort of more structural systemic reforms institutionally to avoid uh, the problems we've seen in the past. You know, I mean, earlier you brought up the, an, an, uh, the uh, example of Watergate. Yeah. And the thing about Watergate, it's a really interesting counter in a way because, of course, we think that our problems today are so bad and we forget that we have had political crises before. But after Watergate, there was a profound reorganization of many aspects of the national security state in particular in order to avoid a similar repeat. And it doesn't seem to me like we've seen a similar systemic reorganization in the wake of the, um, the last four years. 
Well, look, I think, um, you know, you're seeing um, efforts on the Hill. You're seeing the January 6th Commission undertake mm -hmm. its work. Um, and it's appropriate for policymakers and uh, folks on the Hill and others uh, and law professors and law students and um, policy students um, to debate these things and to make recommendations, right? Um, our job in the Justice Department, and I, you know, I say this a lot. I say this to students that I talk to. I said it um, when, I, when President Biden nominated me. I think the job and what is great about the Justice Department is um, the career men and women who steward that department regardless of the political wins, right? And it is the job of people like myself, the Attorney General, the other leaders in the department to be very conscious custodians of that institution. That's what I took away from Attorney General Reno hanging that portrait of Ed Levy in her conference room. That was a signal to everyone who entered there that those norms, those changes, uh, those guidelines that 20, 30, 40, 50 years on should be adhered to, um, that was her signal that we are all custodians of the institution. And the way we are good custodians, in my view, is by um, maintaining those norms. If they need shoring up, we should do it, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, which is why uh, Attorney General Garland um, announced his own version of the White House contacts policy. And if you read it and compare it to others, uh, I think he's shorn it up in certain spaces, right? Um, which is why we adhere to, even though it frustrates many people, the norm of not talking about ongoing investigations, mm -hmm. right? It is incredibly frustrating, I think, to many people that we don't talk in detail about specific investigations. And there's very good reason for that. And I think, frankly, we in the department uh, need to and should be doing more to discuss not the specifics of an investigation, but how we work, why we don't talk about the specifics of an investigation, and here's why. Um, this is one of the ways we try and insulate charging and other um, decisions from extrinsic influences. Even as important a value as transparency is, and it very much is, particularly uh, for those of us in government who wield enormous power, transparency is exceptionally important, not for transparency's sake, although that is important, but because it allows people to evaluate how we are wielding power in their name, right? So that's a very important value. By the same token, we in the Justice Department have another responsibility, a legal responsibility, uh, a constitutional responsibility to ensure that our, in our investigations have integrity. So on the one hand, it means making sure that we don't describe our investigative steps such that um, those investigative steps are thwarted, that evidence is hidden or destroyed, or witnesses decide they don't want to come forward. And equally importantly, we don't talk about people whose conduct we haven't charged, right? We don't cast suspicion or talk about people who haven't been charged because it's unfair. People are entitled to due process, right? We've all heard people are innocent until proven guilty. We don't, we only speak about uh, conduct that we have put in a court document and are willing to prove up in court. 
And that's an, an exceptionally important value to uphold. And I think people, we all, who are interested in justice, the value, not the department, um, can appreciate that we don't try somebody in public opinion or even in Ida Noyes Hall um, unless we are willing to bring that information forward uh, into, uh, into court. And I think that's, that's an appropriate thing and we have to be very um, conscious about how we're balancing both that important value of transparency and letting people know that yes, we are on the job uh, with guarding that norm of uh, making sure our investigations have integrity and we are protecting and, and guarding the rights of those um, who we have not charged. And I think what you saw, for instance, in the Attorney General's speech on January 5th, the day before the first anniversary of the attack on our democracy at the Capitol, was an explication of these principles. Uh, even as we are balancing those two values, um, the Attorney General gave an update, described um, what we were doing, uh, the 800, now nearly 800 people who have been charged, including um, uh, 200, uh, some, more than 200, uh, who attacked federal officers. Um, and so he described the work we are doing um, because it is so important to give people an understanding uh, of what we're doing. Now look, there's, we're not going to be able to, as we balance these two transparency values and our responsibility to adhere to norms about integrity of our investigations, as we balance those two things, we're not going to please everybody. But the job is not to please particular points of view. It is to uphold the rule of law uh, and act consistent um, with our charge, which is uh, to operate consistent with the facts, with the law, with the principles of federal prosecution. Okay, great. But since you did bring up January 6th and yeah. the prosecutions against the January 6th defendants, yeah. I did want to ask about that. And again, you made clear you're not going to talk about any pending cases individually. Because I'm adhering but to But I'm course. a law professor and yeah. I love knowing generally what's yes. going on and understanding sure. structures and systems Good. and approaches and balancing tests. That's great. <laughs> um, so as a prosecutor, I imagine it's a quite difficult task to think about how, who to prosecute, how to prosecute, how to go about the business of prosecuting uh, this event because it is now incredibly politically divisive. Yeah. The Republica National Committee has described the insurrection as a legitimate political discourse. On the other hand, there are those um, who think that it represents a fundamental threat to democracy in the United States. These are vastly divergent points of view. So when you, as a prosecutor, are thinking about the task of potentially bringing charges, how do you weigh these competing considerations and the impact this is going to have on the American political system? Are you saying it's totally uh, irrelevant altogether? No, look, um, we don't operate in a bubble, right? But what we do do is um, investigate conduct and crimes, not people or viewpoints, mm -hmm. okay? So the January 6th investigation. Now more than 800 people charged. As I said, more than 200 um, charged with and, and arrested for assaulting federal officers. Uh, 10 who've been uh, arrested and charged for attacking members of the news media and destroying their equipment. I could go on and on. Our court filings and 
public video that many of you have seen details significant violence, people using poles and other uh, dangerous weapons to beat, uh, in many instances, uh, officers to, um, you know, uh, engage in violent conduct in an effort to um, thwart and uh, obstruct what is a fundamental act of our democracy, which is the peaceful transfer of power. Mm -hmm. We've now had three individuals uh, who are members of the Oath Keepers organization plead guilty to seditious conspiracy. Um, and that, um, in, in their plea statements and in our papers before the court, indicate that they engaged in a plan to use all means, including force, to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. So how we go about making these decisions, first, we look at and investigate the crimes in front of us, right? Uh, and then we work our way up. We follow the facts, we follow um, the evidence, we follow the money, uh, and have our investigation go out from there. And it's very important to do that in a methodical way. Why? So that uh, people don't think you are starting from an assumption, right? Um, if you are starting from that which is in front of you and investigating those facts and letting the facts guide you, not letting your assumptions, uh, not letting uh, viewpoints guide you, but starting um, at the bottom, as it were, and working out from there, that also, I think, should give people confidence that we are investigating conduct, not people and not viewpoints. Do you feel any pressure, though, in an increasingly fast media environment where news is constantly breaking to, I mean, this goes back to the earlier question about the trade-off between transparency and um, impartiality or integrity. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, those are, that's an old <laughs> trade-off, but it's a new media environment. So I was curious, did the DOJ have a tweeter? Do you think about social media? <laughs> do you worry that not speaking more than you do about cases allows those who want to misinform or spread conspiracy and rumor to a lot of room to, to maneuver? How do you deal with this new weaponized information environment? Look, um, it is a new environment, and um, I'm concerned about what that environment does um, to aid or propagate violence and threats of violence. Mm -hmm. um, um, I am, you know, I can't be as concerned with Twitter or commentators trying to work the refs, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, the actions we take. We've got to be guided by um, the facts and the law and working out uh, from there, uh, because I think that is the, the thing that can give people confidence that we are, in fact, doing our job. Now, you say, but So how no dedicated people, tweeter. No dedicated, well, I think our public affairs office does have mm -hmm. a, and I'll just say it for this crowd because I hope he's not listening. It's pretty boring, Twitter. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, that's what you would expect from your Justice Department, I hope. Um, look, it, it is, uh, I think it is something that we're actively constantly evaluating, right? How do we do this balance of the importance of transparency and public confidence that we are doing our job as public servants, right? Um, while making sure, we just spent you know, an hour talking about adhering to norms, mm -hmm. right? There are laws as well as 
the justice manual, our own internal guidance and policy that says I'm not, and DOJ employees are not supposed to talk about cases outside the four corners of our court documents, right? Um, those norms, those guidance documents, those policies, let alone um, the federal criminal law that says it's a crime to talk about what, what you did in the grand jury, right? And we're bound by that. Um, if we don't adhere to those norms at times of great tumult and unusual behavior, um, then what are they there for, right? I, my own view is we abide by norms and policy, um, especially in unusual circumstances, because that's what keeps our ballast, right? That's what keeps those norms strong and reliable. Do you worry, though, that in a future administration it may be stopped by people who are not so committed to norms and balance? Look, I mean, you've talked a lot about self-discipline, yeah. right? About being a particular kind of lawyer, doing a particular kind of justice. But again, we are in this you know, strange territory where people have very, very different views about what the role of the Department of Justice should be and who their exemplars are, and everyone yeah. is not looking at Ed Levy. Yeah. Well, look, um, I... I worry that we do our job to keep those rule of law muscles strong, right? Uh, I think that is our job as custodians of the institution. And I take it exceptionally seriously. The Attorney General takes it exceptionally seriously. Uh, and I think if we are doing that, um, the 116,000 uh, men and women of the Justice Department um, are waking up every morning um, keeping their head down, doing their job, and it's our job to make sure that they've got the tools and the norms um, to do that job. Okay, so I have to I'm going to turn to the student questions very soon, but uh, so I have one final question Okay. I think it's my responsibility to ask. And again, I know you're not supposed to talk about pending cases or uncharged cases. You don't want to uh, prosecute anyone in this uh, theater, so I'm just going to ask you a hypothetical. Um, <laughs> not about any real person, just a hypo, like I do every day in the classroom, Okay. which is you're the Deputy Attorney General and you have some power to decide what Department of Justice goes after, and there's former high-ranking members of the administration who are no longer in the administration, mm -hmm. and there's plenty of suggestive evidence, and maybe some federal judges have found there to be quite a lot of evidence that they have committed crimes. So how do you go about the process of thinking about whether to charge them? How do you talk to the American public about that process? How do you do it? CEG, the last hour. Yeah, right? it's no different. There's, no. when thinking about charging the highest uh, uh, federal official and uh, a regular person. One set of rules, no matter who's on the side of the V, right? That has to be the right answer. And so it's just, if you have enough evidence, you're Right, Professor? Charge. Doesn't that have to be the right answer? Well, in my class, we talk a lot about a thing called prosecutorial discretion, right? right? And how much power this gives prosecutors to make difficult choices about right. where to mobilize resources. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so um, we look to the policy and uh, the process that guides that decision-making, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then when it's appropriate, if we've decided to bring charges, we'll talk about those charges, right? Mm -hmm. We won't talk about the uncharged conduct. Mm -hmm. And it is important to, to talk about um, uh, the work that we're doing. So for instance, you know, I've spent a bunch of time in the last month talking about what we're doing to go after Russian uh, cyber attackers, right? What we're doing to go back and uh, seize back 
uh, assets from Russian oligarchs as our part of the whole of government effort to respond to the horror that's happening uh, in Ukraine. It's important for us to talk about that as a priority mm -hmm. um, so people understand the steps we are taking in their name um, to address the aggression that's happening in Ukraine. That's an example where we're taking steps, we're talking about the work that we're doing, but we're doing it in the context of specific enforcement action that we've taken and where we can point to conduct that we will either prove in court um, or you know, put before a judge in a forfeiture action. I guess I'll say follow up because maybe I don't see any students at the microphones, but I think if students have questions, please go up to the microphones. Mm -hmm. Just as a quick follow up. Sure. I mean, thinking sympathetically, one might imagine that if you're a prosecutor and you've got lots of cases to charge and there's lots of bad behavior to go after, mm -hmm. you might think that you know, the profound political fallout that might follow going after a particular individual will distract generally from the work of the Department of Justice mm -hmm. and in the long run undermine the people's justice. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm wondering are those kinds of concerns, not with the, oh, we don't want to charge this person because of their rank, mm -hmm. but we, we don't want to charge this person because it's going to make our lives of doing the people's justice so much harder. Do those kinds of considerations come in? Look, I'll quote the Attorney General here. We don't um, avoid specific cases because they're controversial or they're sensitive. We do avoid making decisions based on purely political or partisan considerations. Okay. Uh, questions? Hi, my name is Graham Harwood. I'm a first year student at the Harris School of Public Policy. Hi. Um, hi. Uh, so, you talked a lot about norms, mm -hmm. and uh, how, kind of how do you think about the, the kind of collision of non legislative or judicial precedents? such as like the norms that are in briefs that are published by the Office of Legal Counsel mm -hmm. and the Justice Department. How do you think about overturning or going against you know, old memos that were neither voted on nor ruled on by uh, the judiciary branch? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, this is an issue that confronted uh, the Office of Legal Counsel in particular at the beginning of the Obama administration, where there were a set of OLC opinions um, that the new leadership of OLC decided to undertake a review of. But they did so pursuant to a set of principles and um, a kind of guidance of how they were going to look at those, right? So a very lawyerly thing to do, right? To not do it on a one-off basis, but to say, here are the principles that are going to guide how we review OLC opinions. And then they made that transparent. So you can go to the OLC website and you can look at those principles and you can see uh, and they're being adhered to by the, by the current leadership uh, of OLC. Now, you can't see all the OLC opinions. Many of those are That's secret. Right. So has there been any desire to make the OLC opinions, including maybe in particular the ones uh, uh, issued under Trump, public? So this is where I would point you to those, um, to those set of principles, which is to say, um, unless there is a reason to keep particular opinion secret? Does it deal with classified information? Um, does it affect a particular, for instance, national security operation that may be ongoing? You know, those are considerations why you wouldn't um, publish that particular guidance. It may be uh, so particular to um, a lawyer-client discussion that those of you who are budding lawyers in the room, you'll know you want to keep that um, uh, advice privileged and, and confidential, so your clients will continue to share things with you. So those are the types of judgments uh, that get made. But 
Um, in many instances, there is uh, a presumption to, in fact, uh, publish those opinions for all the reasons um, that you would imagine. So you can see what is the judgment. Of course, OLC um, is um, binding on the executive branch, right, is the definitive word on interpretation for executive branch employees as to what a particular law uh, does or does not do. Hello, my name is Divya Marothra. I'm a first year student at the college, so the undergraduate college. Um, right. President, uh, so Attorney General, sorry, I'm a bit short. Um, I hear you. <laughs> um, glad to hear that someone understands. Um, Attorney General Merrick Garland recently announced the Climate Office um, under, underneath the Department of Justice. So I wanted to ask two questions about it. First is, how does this differ um, from previous um, prosecutions in that arena? And then second, what is the first priority of the Department of Justice in regards to climate issues and, and this new office? So uh, with the Attorney General, just for all of you who don't know, he announced um, last week uh, the creation of uh, an Office of Environmental Justice, right, which is a separate office within the Environment Division of of the Department of Justice, which is a set of lawyers with both civil and, in some cases, criminal uh, authorities to go after violations uh, of environmental law. And this is the first time that there's been a specific focus on issues of environmental justice. And we had kind of a robust discussion about, well, how should we set this up? Should it be in the environment division? Should it be somewhere else in the department? And um, we settled on the environment um, division, but importantly, to make sure that we've got experts, for instance, from our civil rights division involved in those discussions uh, and involved in uh, that enforcement work. So what you're seeing here is, I think, pretty unprecedented, specific focus on carrying out uh, issues of in in enforcement when it comes to environmental justice, uh, when seeing communities that may be disproportionately impacted uh, by um, violations of certain environmental laws and the like. Hi, uh, my name is Marie Artie. I'm a second year at the college. I had something of a specific question about resentencing hearings. Uh, there's been a sort of a broad trend in, in certain states of revisiting sentencing guidelines mm -hmm. uh, and making some of those changes retroactive. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's been litigation at the Supreme Court about specifically the First Step Act and mm -hmm. whether judges uh, must, must not, or should uh, consider changes in the law. So I was wondering. Uh, if you could speak to what those hearings generally look like. Um, mm -hmm. do they, are they ever adversarial? What kind of evidence is a judge considering when they use their discretionary judgment to decide whether or not to reduce a person's sentence? Yeah, so the First Step Act was a um, really kind of um, path-breaking piece of bipartisan legislation passed in the last couple of years that both um, paved the way for uh, those who are incarcerated to earn more um, credit on their sentence by participating in reentry programming and rehabilitative programming so they can be productive members of society when they leave incarceration. Uh, and the First Step Act also had a number of provisions in it to allow in some circumstances those uh, individuals who had been subject to very serious sentencing, particularly under certain drug laws, uh, to have their sentence um, re-looked at uh, by a judge. And frankly, there's a debate, as you said, in the Supreme Court, which I won't get into because it's pending litigation. Um, but importantly, one of the things that uh, I hope will happen is with 
a um, new nominees to the Sentencing Commission, which, as you probably know, has a lot of influence and can set a lot of uh, guidance as to how uh, litigants do um, interpret uh, the sentencing guidelines. I'm hoping uh, for the first time in quite some time we can get the Sentencing Commission to a quorum, uh, which it doesn't have right now, so it's kind of hard for it to do its job, um, to be able to make some inroads uh, in this particular area. Presenting arguments to a state legislature that it should pick electors other than those that the popular vote chose uh, because the candidate who lost would make a better president could be regarded as protected speech, would be protected speech. But alleging specific facts that you know to be false could be regarded as perpetrating a, a fraud on the legislature. And so there's a kind of clear norm, but if one were to make a prosecution for seditious conspiracy on those grounds, there would be many other elements that would have to be proved that turn on many other norms. And even though there's a kind of overarching norm that the person who loses the election should cede power, there's in a way such a complicated set of norms and it's such a unique case that it would be, it could be regarded by one side as a novel prosecution based on novel theories whereas the other side would say declining to prosecute would be political because it's uh, regarding somebody, the leader of a movement, as too powerful to prosecute. So how do you navigate, how do you make sure the rule of law can protect the rule of law under these circumstances? Did Genevieve put you up to that? Five dollars. <laughs> Everyone's corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Look, um, you know, you, you cited uh, the issue around electors. I'm going to stay pretty far away from that because I have already acknowledged um, that the issue of alleged uh, fraudulent electors is something that is uh, under review by the department. Okay, I guess I'll ask a variety of bad questions. Yep. I did not put him up to it, but I am curious about this. Yeah. Which is, again, going back to January 6th, you say you just follow the law, but there is uh, so many laws and they're generally quite, wordly, quite broadly worded, for example, mm. seditious conspiracy. And so again, I just wanna know about the trade-off. So, so far in the prosecutions, although I understand that everything's not over yet by mm. any means, uh, most of the people who have been charged are those who were directly involved in the events at the Capitol. But we know that there was plenty of organizing, inciting, encouraging. Mm -hmm. And we might think that many of those who were involved in the organizing, the inciting, the encouraging, perhaps bear more responsibility than those who participated or equal responsibility. And yet it does raise difficult First Amendment concerns. So in thinking about how high to go, how broadly to go in these prosecutions, when we move beyond the people who entered the Capitol to people who were involved in the planning and the orchestrating, mm -hmm. how do you think about the free speech concerns? And also, how do you think about the, this, this excellent question about prior precedents? You know, how conservative do you, do you play it? Do you worry that if you are gonna be conservative, the result is going to be an overly anemic sort of a form of justice. So a few points. One, on the question of um, how broad to go, how high to go, um, we've been exceptionally clear about this, and let me restate it and be clear here. Uh, we will follow the facts in the law wherever they go to hold perpetrators of January 6th accountable at any level, at any level. Um, and. Uh, we will do so 
um, whether or not individuals were present on that day or not. So we've been exceptionally clear, and I want to make um, that clear here for this audience. When it comes to making judgments about um, how to make these charging decisions, uh, seditious conspiracy. I mentioned three pleas already to seditious conspiracy. Um, it won't take a huge law school paper writing exercise to look at the history of the seditious conspiracy statute, as the professor here can tell you. Um, it does not, you, know, you won't find a lot of cases, right? So something we take very seriously, uh, and we appropriately, I think, brought these charges, which I'm not going to expound on beyond what is in the charging papers, uh, except to say that we think it um, appropriately gets at the gravity of the conduct. And again, we've gotten uh, three guilty pleas uh, to, that, uh, to that particular statute uh, already. Uh, last point on how do we make these decisions. You know, I talked about starting first with the crimes that are kind of in front of us, right, and then working out uh, from there and the reasons for that. I think what you see in the charging decisions that we've made, the most serious charges and, frankly, thus far sentences have been meted out against those individuals who engaged in assault. The 200-plus individuals who I said who we've uh, arrested in charge with assaulting officers, right, or members uh, of the news media, um, those who engaged in conspiracy, conspiracy acts to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. Those uh, are the most serious charges and thus far are garnering uh, the most serious charges and, and uh, ultimately sentences uh, most likely. Uh, then where that conduct is not present, either assault or a conspiracy to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power, um, you see us using lesser charges, right, um, for those who entered the Capitol without authorization, trespassing and the like. Um, it is important to mete out those charges at well, as well. However, you're seeing those individuals both coming forward and taking responsibility, getting lesser sentences, both because they are lesser charges and if they've come forward, accepted responsibility, and in some instances cooperated with the government, um, you will see lesser sentences uh, and lesser charges there. Okay, I think we have time for one last question from <laughs> students. Do you want to take it away? Uh, afternoon. Thanks for being with us today. I found it very enjoyable. My name is George. I'm a first year in the college, and so while my understanding and skills with hypotheticals probably isn't quite up to scratch, I'm going to try my best because I think this is going to be a question that is in the minds of a lot of the audience. Um, thinking about kind of a departmental uh, interpretation of the Constitution, uh, say that there was one department who uh, read, con contrary to the opinion of a different department, one that might govern the Justice Department, certain rights that can be found in the Constitution. How do you, and you've talked a lot about norms, rigid uh, structures that, that uh, guide the, the Justice Department, and I, and I would imagine over time those have only become uh, more robust and, and more intricate since uh, historical instances where the Justice Department might have uh, read into the Constitution, read, read the Constitution a little bit differently than other departments. I think back to, to uh, Dred Scott and I think Abraham Lincoln's uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Attorney General acted a little bit, uh, Edward Bates acted a little bit contrary to, to what Roger Taney might have wanted him to do. Um, how do you view in the modern era where these, these institutions are more complicated, 
are far more uh, disparately organized and the structures are a little bit more rigid than they used to be. How do you view the role of the Justice Department in interpretation and execution of the constitutional um, rights that are questioned by some departments of the government and, and uh, viewed well, differently by others? Well, the good news is um, the other departments of the government don't have the power to enforce the law or prosecute anybody. That is solely, when it comes to federal law, the job of the Justice Department. And then we defend or don't other parts of the government uh, when they get on the wrong side of some of those interpretations. So um, for good or for ill, um, we, we say what goes. And as I said, the Office of Legal Counsel is uh, the definitive voice in the Justice Department on, and ultimately the Attorney General, on what the um, executive branch interpretation of federal laws. Okay, I think we still have five more minutes. So okay. I, two more minutes. Okay, two more minutes. Oh, two, two more, more questions. questions. Okay, two more questions, and I'm just going to. And I won't filibuster. How about that? Okay. <laughs> I will try and be fast. Okay. So when oh, my name is Eve. I'm a second year in the college. So when considering cases like Alexander v. Sandoval, in which um, the Supreme Court struck down cases that challenged racial biases in the criminal justice system, which were obviously affected by personal and political biases. How can we move forward from here towards equality with these as a precedent in terms of like overturning them? So uh, the Attorney General has been very, very clear um, that the enforcement of and upholding of civil rights is foundational for the Justice Department. He talks about it being in the Justice Department's DNA. Um, the last questioner talked about Abraham Lincoln. Um, at, in the Reconstruction era, the Justice Department was basically set up to, its first job was to enforce the civil rights laws, right? Uh, to go after um, and enforce the Ku Klux Klan Act, right? People who were persecuting uh, and going after newly enfranchised uh, African-American citizens, right? So when you think back, that is the history of the Justice Department. It was founded to enforce our civil rights laws, and obviously has had a long, distinguished and sometimes complicated history uh, in that regard. But he's been very, very clear that, yes, we have a civil rights division, but upholding and enforcing our civil rights runs through everything that the Justice Department does, whether it's prosecuting hate crimes, whether it's addressing domestic violent extremism, whether it's um, uh, prioritizing environmental justice, whether it's uh, going after and enforcing uh, voting rights laws, those all have a line to our responsibility to enforce and uphold civil rights laws. Of course, some of these initiatives have generated their own political uh, uh, reaction. Yep. So, for example, I know that the Domestic Terrorism Task Force, uh, which was created under Attorney General Garland, mm -hmm. has been heavily criticized. I think uh, Chuck Grassley said it's politicizing the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. How do you balance, again, this concerned with political blowback against these sort of more creative uh, initiatives to create uh, new areas of concern for the Justice Department? So look, I, I think uh, we have to be grounded in facts. We have to be grounded in data, mm -hmm. right? So that is a response. The uh, National Security Division, the division I used to have the privilege to lead, uh, is responding by creating a unit within the division to focus on um, domestic terrorism issues, is responding to what the FBI and the intelligence community has said is 
um, a disturbing rise in uh, the level of threat when it comes uh, to domestic violent extremism, regardless of what ideological um, root that extremism uh, may have. So we have to be rigorous in grounding our efforts in facts, in data, uh, and be responsive uh, to the threats, whether it's foreign terrorism or uh, domestic terrorism. Okay, great. Okay, last student question. Okay, great. Sorry, I'll try not to hold everyone over. Um, my name's Kate. I'm a 2L, so I'll try not to embarrass the law school too badly here. Um, I would hate to embarrass your alma mater, but um, we've talked a bit about prosecutor prosecutorial discretion. Obviously, you shouldn't bring charges because of something like a protected class or political views. I'm going to very tactfully segue off that to introduce a brand new topic with our last two minutes here. Um, but as state and local law enforcement um, and state and local courts are starting to experiment more with using AI, AI machine learning and a mm -hmm. lot of decisions, what are the discussions going on at DOJ about using AI ML tools in prosecutorial uh, charging decisions? What are the due process concerns and the equal protection concerns? It's a great question, and it's new technologies and emergent technologies uh, are something we have to both recognize the promise of and how it can help you know, uh, from both investigative um, uh, work as well as um, how it helps us in a whole host of scientific discoveries, right? We have to both um, realize the promise there, but do so very clear-eyed uh, that these are tools that can be abused. So one of the things I did when I first got back to the department was undertake a comprehensive cyber review of all of the uh, cyber issues that cut across the Justice Department, including the use of certain technologies. Uh, and what I asked for was a set of recommendations on what should be the principles that govern our use and procurement of AI uh, technology, and how do we put that to use? Uh, and I'm looking forward to getting those recommendations very soon. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.